Uh, last week, if you were here, Dustin faithfully preached the first half of John 15. I'm so thankful that, uh, that he preached. That was actually my favorite. You know, as we started John, there's, there's parts of uh, John's gospel where you just want to like, I, I couldn't wait to preach that passage. Uh, and John 15 was that passage for me. I'm like, I cannot wait till we get to John 15. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Like, I cannot wait. And then it just worked out to where Dustin got to preach that passage. So I was like, I was like jealous that Dustin got to preach that passage. And then uh, when, when I was joking with him about it, he reminded me that when we were going through Revelation, that it just so happened to fall on him to preach uh, the Mark of the Beast. So he's like, I think you owe me one. So fair enough. Uh, so he got to preach that passage. I'm glad that he did because me sitting here, I need to sit and hear God's word. And last week was just good to have God's word penetrate my heart. Um, I feel like I've not been abiding, remaining in Christ very well. I feel like I've been trying to grow, doing things on my own ability. And so I'm thankful for Dustin stepping in and preaching. Um, so this morning we actually wrap up chapter 15. And we're going to eke our way into chapter 16 just a bit for context. Um, so Jesus has he's had the same audience minus Judas. Um, he's had the same audience there with him since chapter 13. And Jesus, knowing that his time has come, he has really f- been focusing and preparing his disciples for his soon departure. I mean, this is the night before um, he, his, his death, and it's still the same evening, chapter 15, 16, still the same evening as chapter 13 when they were preparing the Lord's Supper. But at some point, and scholars will debate on this, there's been some movement um, it seems like they're not sitting there now at the table. We know that in chapter 17, Jesus is praying in the garden. And, and so Judas shows up with some soldiers. Jesus is arrested. Um, but what is the setting for chapter 15? Are they still in the upper room? Um, how do they end up in the garden? What well, seems like at the end of chapter 14, in my opinion, offers the best solution. John 14, 31 says, Rise, let us go up from here. So it seems like after they finished maybe the Passover meal, they began to walk east towards the Mount of Olives, towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Along the way, Jesus maybe sees this vine. He uses his surroundings to begin to teach his disciples that he is the vine, they are the branch. So it's probably in that context of them kind of walking um, that this context of our passages. So it's, it's night. Um, there's this play in John's gospel with dark and light. So it's, it's dark in the world, but the light of God is with them. And he says this to them in verse 18 of chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated um, me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that 
no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I have told them to you. Let's pray. God, thank you um, for leaving us with your word, your very true word. Uh, it's powerful. Thank you for the promises of this passage that, that we have a helper. Lord, I pray that you would give us... Um, a desire for your word, a desire to be obedient to you would help us to listen to your spirit this morning, that we'd be convicted of sin, lead us to um, repentance, Lord. Help us to trust you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in last week's passage, I was sitting here listening to Dustin. I was just overwhelmed with encouragement when Jesus told his disciples that he no longer calls them servants, but he calls you a friend. That, that just blew me away. I, I mean, most of us, we've probably had some kind of friend crush at some point. Uh, may, maybe there's someone famous, maybe an athlete, some kind of actor, actress that you want to be friends with. Um, but to think that the creator of all things, the one who every knee will bow and tongue confess, to think that he wants to be my friend. It's mind-blowing. It's life-changing that Jesus calls you friend. And I thought Zach might even last week play out, you know, the I am a friend in God or, uh, or the old Michael W. Smith, uh, friends forever. Uh, he, he steered away from those, probably rightly so. Um, but I mean, if you think about it, not, not Muhammad, not Buddha, nor the thousands of Hindu gods would call you friend. But Jesus calls you friend. You know, Muhammad, Buddha, some of them, they might consider you servants, but Jesus says, you're no longer my servant, you're my friend. Like, man, that is beautiful. And it's this idea of friend that I think creates this bridge between last week's passage and this morning. Jesus says in verse 18 19, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If the world hates you. The word if here makes it sound like Jesus is showing you know, uncertainty. Like there's a chance that the world won't hate you. But from the context, we see that this is not the case at all. Jesus is not saying like, hey, guys, here's some advice just in case the world starts to hate you. We know he's speaking more concretely because he links the if statement 
to the world hating him. If the world has hated me, then just know that the world will, or you could even say should, hate you. Hatred from the world is a certainty. If you're a follower of Christ, this is a guarantee. If Jesus was hated, so will his followers be hated. But what does Jesus mean when he uses the word world? This is important. He's not referring to the population on our planet. The world consists of all those who are rebellion, um, rebelling against God. In, in that sense, even religious things can be a part of the world. So because of our sin, all people fit into this category of the world. Before you were in Christ, you too were included in the world. So in a sense, the world hates Jesus because it stands opposed to all that God is and what he is doing. So that's when John uses the word world in most of the New Testament. It's not talking about the number of people on the planet. It's talking about this category of humanity that is against God. It's rebelling. And then notice what he says about us in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So he's setting these categories. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus chose us out of the world. When he called us to himself, he called us from something. He called us from our rebellious ways to become a part of his family. And this is why it's important to understand what John means by using the word world. So Jesus is, he's not saying that he chose you out of the seven billion plus people on the planet today. He's saying he's chosen you out of this rebellious lifestyle. So you're basically moving from the ranks of one army to the ranks of another. So we need to remember that God doesn't call us because we've done something special. He doesn't look at you and go, oh, wow, like I need that person for my, to further my kingdom. That's, that's not why he's calling you, because you've done something special. It's simply a demonstration of his love, his grace, his kindness. But when, when the world sees us leave the army of rebellion to join this new army of God, then some will respond with hatred. One author writes this, Former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to the loving allegiance to the rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist the rebellion. So they see this change in your life, and they don't like that. Things that you used to do with them, maybe, uh, and now you don't want to do that. Um, they may not like that you switch sides. So when Jesus calls us to him, he made us a part of a special people. He, he redeemed you. He transferred your domain from here, darkness, to this kingdom of light. So he made you this special people. Listen to how Peter describes the church in 1 Peter 2.9. So Peter says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. You see purpose statements here? That you've been chosen, you've been called out 
from this domain to this other place, this other kingdom, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of this darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This shows us that we don't start out neutral. We are on the enemy side of God, and God extends his mercy to us. We, we see that we are, we are called from something to something. Peter continues to show us what we're called to in the next verse, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's calling you from something, from this domain. He's calling you to something else. So he's calling you out of the world to put you back in this world to live a certain way. And you live differently from the world, not because living a good moral life brings you into a right relationship with God, but because it's honoring to him. And according to verse 12, it has evangelistic efforts. So God calls us out of the world, and then he sends us right back into the world on a mission. He calls us to be in the world, but just not of the world. We are to remain friends with Jesus, but not friends with the world. But far too many Christians will say they're being evangelistic, but are really nothing more than friends with the world. James chapter 4 explains this. James 4.4 4 says this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. God wants you to be fully committed to him. Just as a spouse, God is a jealous God. James and John, they're saying the same things. You are not to be friends with the world. Now, let me remind you that the definition of world does not mean people. James and John, they're not saying that you can't have friends who are lost. The, the word world means that those who are rebelling against God, so James and John are saying that you should not go back to your old ways. Don't be friend with that. There's no apostasy. Don't be a deflector. Stay committed to Christ. Sadly, for many, the desire to be accepted by men, to have their approval, has led to the rejection of Jesus. We want to be liked by others, so we deflect. We go back to that side, we must be on guard at all times. We must make sure that our heart doesn't desire to fit in with the world. See, some of you don't want to stand out. You don't want to be different. But Jesus says, I've called you out. Trying to fit in with the world is the exact opposite of why Jesus chose us and called us and saved us and sends us. We are supposed to be different. So that's why people hate you, because you're different. Jesus is essentially saying they're going to hate you because you're different, but you are different because I called you to be different, and your difference is what makes the gospel shine brighter. People will see you look differently, and Peter says that 
they're going to glorify God, which is interesting that he's saying the Gentiles are going to glorify God because of how you live among them. Does your life look different? One author writes, the difference that Jesus is talking about is not merely external. The Amish are different. That's not what Jesus has called us to do and be. Don't feel guilty using electricity. The difference is much greater. We are different in the kind of fruit our lives produce. The way we are peculiar is that we pray, obey, rejoice, love in ways that are unnatural to the person who doesn't know Jesus. That's what it means to be different. It doesn't mean just wear Christian t-shirts or have a fish on your car. We should look different. The world, people at your work should see something different about you. How you don't cut corners. How you show up to work on time and you stay until it's time to leave. That you're different from the world. See, as you look different from the world, the world will become threatened. And this tension will lead the world to treating you like it treated your master. We see this in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus is basically saying, you can't follow the crucified Savior and not expect a cross. If Jesus, our master, who could never sinned, died because the world hated him, then why would we expect anything different from the world? And notice why we're persecuted. They will do to you on account of my name. So this is not a personal attack on you. The world's hatred might be directed at you, but you are not the ultimate target. Jesus is. Then you fast forward a few years. These same disciples who are listening to Jesus talk, they will personally see this. In Acts chapter 5, the religious leaders, they, they wanted to kill these disciples. They, they hated them. But they were convinced to let them go. And then listen to what happens in Acts 5, starting in verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, so these religious leaders, they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing, listen to this, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That just seems so different from how we live. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I mean, some of us, we're, I mean, we've not been beaten physically, but we've been beaten maybe emotionally, verbally, by maybe workplace or our culture. And we don't count ourselves worthy of suffering. We usually just say, we, we're just not going to speak ever again. We become quiet. The leader's problem, if you notice here, wasn't with the disciples, but with the master of the disciples. They beat the apostles because they hated Jesus, and the disciples served him. 
Disciples, they understood. They, they, they knew what was going on here. They knew it wasn't about them. This is why they rejoiced when they were beaten. I mean, they, they knew the beating wasn't because of them, but on the account of his name. And they left. They rejoiced, counting it worthy. And they kept teaching every day. But unfortunately, most professing Christians never experience any hatred from the world because they maybe don't actually serve Jesus. So Jesus creates a dichotomy here with all humanity in verse 20. There are those who persecute his disciples and those who listen and obey his word. That's it. There's not a third category. Again, there's not like this, mute, uh, this neutral category here. I'm, I'm neither like... I don't hate God, but I'm not really all for him. You're either all for him or, or you're against him. I think it's also important here to, to understand that Jesus specifies why the world hates you. If you're an obnoxious jerk and the world hates you, Jesus is not saying that you, that, that you can use this verse to justify being a big jerk face. Well, you, you know what Jesus said? Jesus said the world's going to hate you, so I'm just being obedient. I'm just making sure that they will hate me. That's not what he's saying here. Jesus explains why the world will hate you in the following verses. Spoiler alert, it's not because he's given you permission to be mean to others. Um, so look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Jesus says that the reason people show opposition to Jesus comes down to their lack of knowing God. They do not want God, therefore they do not want God's son. They hated Jesus, it says here, for no reason except that he exposed all their ungodliness in their hearts. Everyone who thought they were pretty good saw their sin exposed, and they hated Jesus for it. And now that hatred is turned towards you. Jesus now turns his attention back to the Holy Spirit in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, here called the helper or the advocate or counselor, to bear witness about Jesus. And it seems like the Holy Spirit will help you accomplish two things according to this passage. First, we see in verse 27 that the helper will help us, the Christian, to bear witness about Jesus. So Jesus says that you will also bear witness. Witnessing is not an option for the follower of Jesus. You will bear witness. Talking about Jesus is not something just super elite Christians do. It's something every single one of you who claims Christ, it's what you do. It's not the job for the staff of the church or the pastors it's for every single one of you who claims Christ that you're a follower. That's what, that's what you're called to do. 
Listen, I, I know it's hard. I know a lot of you struggle with this. I struggle with this. If you're an introvert, it might even seem impossible to be a witness. But I want you to think about this. If it were easy, then you wouldn't need Jesus to send the helper, right? I mean, Jesus didn't send the helper to help me eat ice cream. I don't need any help. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit because he knew that you would need boldness to share a gospel message that the world does not want to hear, to share a message that could lead to your death. That is one of the reasons why Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit. We need to lean in to him. Let him work through us. A witness, I mean, just think of the word witness. A witness is someone who testifies or speaks of what they have heard or seen. You would be a terrible witness if you were on the witness stand in a courtroom and you had critical evidence to the case and you decided that the way you were going to witness that day was by being nice. I'm just going to stand up here on the stand and just be really kind and people will know. But that's what we think when we think about sharing our faith. That if I'm just nice, then people will know that I'm a Christian and they'll bow their knee and repent of their sin. They need to hear the gospel message that Jesus died for their sins, that he rose from the dead, that he's ruling from heaven. We have to open up our mouth and speak about the good news of the gospel If not, then we're really not witnessing. And we know from this passage that most will not embrace your witness. So that's also not very encouraging, is it? I mean, would you you want to sell something that nobody wants to buy? In a sense, a lot of people does not they do not want to hear the gospel. But we have to faithfully share the good news of Jesus. This is why I love. When Jesus is starting this whole, you know, this gathering his disciples in Matthew's gospel early on, chapter 4, he looks at his disciples and he says, I'm calling you to be fishers of men. And I love just that reminder that we are called to be fishers of men, not catchers of men. Um, and so God's not calling you to save anyone. He does the saving. He just wants you to be faithful to share the good news of his son. The spirit of truth will help and guide you to speak the truth about Jesus. You're not expected to accomplish this on your own. Jesus promises to send you help. It's been said that the spirit of God will be sent from the throne of God to empower the people of God to witness about the son of God. So Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to help you witness. Then the second reason we see why Jesus sends the helper is found in verse 1 of chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these to you that when the hour comes, you may remember I have told them to you. So Jesus is giving them a warning. Hey, you need to be on guard, watch out. And he says, the greatest danger that you're going to face is not hatred or persecution or even death. 
The greatest threat to those who claim Christ, according to Jesus here in this passage, is apostasy. I have said all of these things to you to keep you from what? Falling away. That's scary to think about. That as I look around this room, I see so many people I love, care about. I think about all over the years, you know, there's some people who have just fallen away. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, I think, gives us some insight to this. Uh, Jesus tells a parable here in Matthew 13 with people who looked like they had faith, but ultimately did not have saving faith. Listen to this, Matthew 13, starting in verse 4. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. A little later, if you drop down to verse 19, Jesus explains this parable. He says this in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. That was the first seed. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on the count of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. So there's, there's three groups of people here that if you were to take a snapshot of their life, they would all look the same. They'd all look like they're growing, bearing fruit. But if you were to fast forward just a bit, only one group proves to be true followers of Jesus. So two groups experience apostasy. They fall away. Listen to how Jesus describes that second seed in this parable. Think about it in light of John 16, what we've been reading in 15, 16. And listen to this. It's crazy. As for what was sown on the rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. Listen to this. But endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises. Now, what has Jesus been preparing them for? Persecution. The world's going to hate you, persecute you. But when persecution arises, now why is persecution arising? On account of what? The word. Why are they going to hate you? Because you stand with Jesus. And then what happens here? Immediately they what? They fall away. The greatest danger in persecution is not death, but being convinced that this temporary life can offer more than Jesus. Jesus is showing us that persecution has a way of revealing the authentic Christian's from the fake Christians. 
And notice where this persecution now comes from. This is crazy. Look at verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think they offering service to God. Who would be the people that would put you out of the synagogue? It would be the religious folk of the day. So this is not persecution from out there, what we would maybe call the world. This is persecution from within the walls of religion. There's a price for following Jesus. You must count the cost. Would you be like the disciples and say that, that you're worthy to receive that kind of suffering? Or is that just so uncomfortable? So we have to count the cost. You must be willing to pay the price because the prize is worth the price. Knowing Jesus is worth the cost. Now listen, I'm, I'm not begging for persecution. I don't pray for it, but I do know that the church always grows during times of persecution. Read the book of Acts this week. The more persecution came, the more the church grew. I mean, they, they were running out, praising that they had been beaten. And yet when somebody says something to you about being a Christian, you shrivel up like, I'm not going to speak anymore. They were beaten, and they ran out loud like, can you believe that? We, we, we were beaten for Jesus. They're high-fiving. The church grows when it's persecuted. I mean, think about where the church is growing today. Places like China, Iraq. They're both seeing tremendous growth in the face of intense persecution. Instead of falling away when persecution comes, Jesus encourages us to rejoice that you were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Living for Jesus and telling others about Jesus might cause someone to hate you. It may even mean you're excluded from someone's circle of friends. You might experience mockery and insults, but don't stop witnessing don't stop walking after Jesus. Jesus essentially says, in the face of persecution, don't fall. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep trusting him. Cling to Jesus. When it seems impossible, beg the Holy Spirit to help you. That's what he's there. He's there to help you. So cling to Jesus Know that the world's going to hate you. Be prepared for it. Believe that having Jesus as your friend is better than being a friend of this world. Let's pray as the band comes back up. Lord, I pray this morning that we would be so encouraged that you call us friend, that we couldn't care less about any other friendship in this world, that you would be enough. So, Lord, for those that come in today feeling lonely or alone, may they realize that they've, they've got a friend in you. Lord, I 
I pray that we would believe that that's enough. That we may not be very popular by the world standards, but you know us by name. And you long to be with us. Lord, may that be enough for us. May that friendship embolden us this week. May we be witnesses of the gospel. May we know that that witness is going to lead to the world hating us, and may we be okay with that. Lord, help us to realize that we don't live in middle school. Lord, give us thick skin to embrace the persecution, to stand fast, to not quit. So, Lord, empower us. Lord, we're we're praying that the helper would help us this week to trust that you are our best friend and that is all we need. So we thank you for your grace and mercy. May we live in that this week. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.